Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today on the show is Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. He serves as the chair for the Department of History and Government and director of the Center for Political Studies. Listen as he shares about the importance of integrating faith and politics. Thank you, Sarah, and hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. It's that time in our country when most, if not all, the news pundits talk about the election. We are just days away from the midterm elections, and there's a lot at stake. And as believers, we should make it our priority to vote. With that said, I thought it would be good to have Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, one of the leading political scientists in Ohio, on the Cedarville Stories podcast today, so we can talk about his interest in politics and how his faith plays a role in his views that he regularly shares with media and students uh, through his work. Dr. Smith is a graduate of Bryan College in Tennessee. He went on to earn a master's degree in history of Christianity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in suburban Chicago. Then he earned two degrees from the University of Georgia, a master's degree and his doctorate in political science. Since coming to Cedarville 15 years ago, he has taught courses in American politics, constitutional law, and politics and film, to name a few. He also leads the Department of History and Government as its chair, and he's one of the most sought-after faculty experts for media interviews at Cedarville University, and as he's done more than 1,000 interviews during his time at Cedarville. Dr. Smith, uh, welcome to the podcast. This is your second time on the program. It's great to have you back. It's good to be here. Always good to be with you, Mark. Well, we always have a good time, and uh, let's begin today's conversation with a little lighthearted talk, because uh, we, we do that from time to time, and later on we'll move into the politics area, but and how your faith uh, impacts your political views. But as I mentioned in the introduction, Mark, you decided to get a master's and a doctoral degree from the University of Georgia. It's a great school, and now it has the now it is the reigning college football champion. Thinking back to last year's college football season, um, think about that. Did did you get caught up in the excitement as a Bulldog alum uh, in uh, what they were doing on the football field? I would take issue with your description of a discussion of college football as lighthearted. So I think we have to start. Uh, fair enough. We have to start. Fair, fair <laughs> no, enough. I'm just, fair enough. I'm, I'm just Go kidding. blue. Um, no, I mean, I uh, I grew up in a basketball state. Yeah, you did. So I grew up in Indiana, played basketball, played basketball in college. Um, I did pay attention to football some, was a Colts fan in the NFL, didn't really have a strong college rooting allegiance. Um and so I went to graduate school, went to Georgia, yep. and went to all the home games while I was there, and became a dyed-in-the-wool bulldog. And so it was it was great to watch them win a championship. Since I'd been a fan, they had not won a championship, and so it was gratifying. Uh, it was good, especially because Georgia's been one of those programs that's sort of been on the precipice of winning something for quite a while. Yeah. They've had a few opportunities where they've gotten close to winning things and just couldn't quite get over the hump. It was good to watch them get over the hump. So it was. Uh, There's a lot of jumping and yelling in the Smith household when uh, Keely Ringo took that interception down the sideline for the game ceiling touchdown. But not all of the Smith household are really Georgia fans, right? That that is correct. I do have a daughter who was born in Michigan, and uh, she manages to keep her loyalty to the University of Michigan. Uh, we we love her anyway. <laughs> That's good. So when uh, when. Georgia narrowly beat Michigan to go to the championship game. Um, was, it, was it the house divided? Was your daughter rooting for Michigan, or did she succumb to your pressure? Uh, she roots for whoever she wants to root for. I don't try to persuade her that way. 
she's she's really not a huge college football fan, right? So it doesn't create that much tension in the house. Uh, but you know, we're adults; we love each other, there so we can, we can get past it. Uh, but yes, it was not exactly a narrow victory over Michigan. I think if the score was correct, uh, it was a pretty one sided match. I mean, I hate to hate to bring up a difficult <laughs> history for you, but just I, what it is. I guess I don't remember it correctly. But um, <laughs> so let's let's uh, ask one more question on on college football in Georgia, and then we'll move on to the the meat of the program. And um, so, as a as a faithful follower of college football, do you think Georgia will repeat this year as national champions? I would say the odds are against it. Uh, I think I think Georgia has a really strong team, uh, young defense still growing, uh, very explosive offense often, but struggling a bit lately. I think I think Georgia will probably get in the playoff. Has a good chance getting the playoff. Right. Besides that, it's it's hard to know. But uh, I would love it if it happened. Uh, but I'm not expecting it to. So since Georgia beat my team, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, um, now it's a good time to move to a different topic. <laughs> and I'd like to talk about your many roles here at Cedarville. So let's begin with leadership. And by the, by what I mean by that is uh, your role with the Center for Political Studies, the Department of History and Government, the D.C. semester, even teaching. What is the function of the Center for Political Studies, which I believe you started, right. and how does it impact students? So the Center for Political Studies is really designed to be a bridge between uh, Cedarville and the broader political world. So that bridge goes in both directions. We bring people to campus to talk about things. We also send students out into the political world uh, with the hope that they will affect it positively, uh, maintain their good Christian witness as they do that, and still bend the world toward, uh, toward God's understanding of what government ought to do when you yeah. get right down to it. Uh, and so the, the Center for Political Studies does that by bringing in speakers, by doing things like the D.C. semester, uh, by giving students opportunities to work as research assistants uh, and other things like that. So, if, you know, in the future, if I could wave a wand and I had a dream, if there's a donor sitting out there listening to this yeah. podcast, yeah. Uh, I'd love it if we could hire faculty under the center's umbrella, if we could yeah. dedicate more time to research uh, and things like that within it. But uh, that's mostly what it does. I do media obligations as my role at the Center for Political Studies, as you mentioned in the introduction, and that's another way that we can put Cedarville out into the political context. So uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with the D.C. semester, what does a semester look like when you take students, and how many students do you take uh, each semester or once a, once a year? Yeah, we go in the fall semester, uh, every semester except for the COVID semesters that were obliterated. Right. Um, we take 12 to 15 students they spend uh, 15 weeks in DC working an internship mostly. Okay. So four days a week they work a job, maybe it's on Capitol Hill, maybe it's with a think tank like the Heritage Foundation or the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, maybe they work for a government agency like Homeland Security or nice. the State Department or someone yeah. else. And they get great experience doing that. Uh, it helps them build a professional resume as well as start to build that professional network that'll hopefully lead to job opportunities and. Uh, avenues for influence, ideally. Uh, so they do that four days a week. They take two classes while they're there. So Tuesday and Thursday night, we do courses. Uh, and then on Mondays, we have those set aside for days of group activities where we mostly do um, serious things. You know, We'll go to uh, get a briefing from an interest group like Bread for the World, which is an organization, a religious organization that focuses on hunger issues. Okay. We'll go there and hear what they do, interact with them a little bit, ask them questions, get their perspective on things. Uh, or we'll go to a government agency for a briefing, things yeah. like that. We also do things that are less, um, you know, less serious. Perhaps uh, we'll go to Mount Vernon as a group. Uh, we'll go to a soccer match. 
we'll go to the, some of the museums. And so it's a wonderful experience for the students. And we send a Cedarville faculty member with them. Mm-hmm. So I've done that several times. Some of my colleagues have done it uh, two or three times as well. And it's a great experience for the faculty member as well as the students. It is. It's a, it's a great program. And that leads me to, I, I, I think it's something that differentiates our program here at Cedarville in political science with any other school that I know I'm aware of. And for example, um, Sage Showers was a guest on the podcast uh, months ago. And I believe she told me that that's what tipped her into coming to Cedarville. Do you see that as a major reason why some students decide to study political science here? I think it's far and away our best uh, tool for selling political science at Cedarville, as well as selling uh, majors within the Department of History and Government. And so uh, as you know, and your listeners may know, we have events on campus for prospective students. Uh, we have one coming up this week when we're recording this on CU Friday is what we call it. And there we meet students and parents who are interested in coming, who are learning more about the university. And whenever I mention the DC semester, uh, eyes light up, yeah. big smiles come across people's faces. And there's always this glance exchange between the student and the parents and you're like, oh yeah, they they see this, they get the benefit of it, and it's a very attractive uh, option for them. And it's just a, it is a life changing experience. And when you describe it to them, they see it as that. And so, it's a great recruiting tool. But obviously, it's more than just a recruiting tool. It's a good program, uh, and it's really a good way for at least speaking from the professor's position for us to make what are honestly lifelong relationships with these students. Right. So whenever I've led the DC semester. Uh, I've had students get married out of that semester. I've officiated weddings from students who got, who met each other within that semester. Uh, we keep in close contact with a lot of the students from those semesters. And uh, it's just a good, strong relationship that's built over a whole semester. Is it the kind of program where students can go one time and one time only? Or can they go back you know, a, a year or two later? We've ha- we have had a couple of students go twice. It's unusual. Um, but there's often enough space within your program. If you're just a political science major, for example, to where we could structure it. If you wanted to go more than once, we could make that work, but it is, it is unusual. Okay. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you also chair the department of political studies and serve as a full-time professor. How are you able to balance these roles and still do them with excellence? You know, I think your your question assumes I do them all with excellence, which sometimes I question myself as to whether I do them all with excellence. It's a lot. It's a lot to do. And there's a lot of strain and pressure being pulled in multiple directions right. um, all the time. And mostly it's a strain uh, with home life, with children and, and being active in the community, and as well as taking on all these obligations. And so uh, you know, I'm not sure if I effectively manage it. I think what I often do is I work, 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 and then I collapse for a while, and then I go back, and then I work, work, work some more, and just hope for the best at that point. But there's always, you have to structure your day. You don't have time to sit around and do nothing. Um, there's always pressure to get things done, and that's just the life of it. And, I, and not, this isn't a shot at you, but the media part is one of the most stressful parts of it, <laughs> just because... Uh, you have to always be prepared. So you'll, you always have to be sort of preparing yourself for a possible media interview that may or may not occur because often when you get called or you get connected, it may be something that's sort of on the spur of the moment. And so that's a, that's a, a significant obligation that uh, I think people looking behind, unless they're looking behind the scenes, they just wouldn't notice. So um, could your media interviews actually give you a break from 
the routine. But it sounds like it probably doesn't because you always have to be on. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not a, I'm not a, this sounds awful to say, I'm not a people person. I'm an introvert by nature. And so it's a, it's always a question of how much interaction and engagement. And then it's a matter of just sort of recharging everything and media obligations, especially are draining because it's just, I feel the pressure of it and not everyone does, but I feel the pressure of it. And uh, I think there's a cumulative effect of that. I hope you have noticed that I've haven't given you many opportunities <laughs> lately, <laughs> and uh, try to share the wealth with your colleagues in history and government. Uh, but they've uh, done a good job of uh, they've done a good job of getting involved and active. You know, when you and I started, when you came on and we started doing this together, then before you, John Davis started doing right. this with some media things. Um, there just wasn't a lot of wide involvement, and now in our department, we have a good number of people who do a lot of media, and it's it's good to watch. It's fun. It is fun. So let's uh, let's move off media and let's talk uh, down the area of your role as a faculty member. When did you first get interested in teaching, and how have you seen your ability to teach as a gift of the Lord? You know, go back to my comment before. As someone who's an introvert, who uh, human interaction can be exhausting. Teaching doesn't seem like a natural sure doesn't occupation, uh, and I think that's still the case to a large extent. But when I was in college, we had a, a ministry at Bryan called the Bible Education Ministry, which in retrospect is maybe not constitutional, but mm. uh, they went into local public schools and we got an hour to sit and teach Bible lessons to uh, students around public schools in Ray County, Tennessee. Uh, Ray County's sometimes disadvantaged, and so you're often working with kids who are on the margins of society. Sure. Families are struggling and things. And I was part of that ministry and showed up uh, once a week and taught students, and it was it was enjoyable. I I, I liked it. Uh, I, I was gratified by it, and I felt like the students were learning some things that I was teaching, and that was really the first time I'd ever thought seriously about teaching, maybe as a long term idea. Uh, I was leaning toward law school, and given my interest in politics, that makes sense in a lot of ways. And I had a professor. Uh, my senior year of college, a professor pulled me into his office and said, you know what, you should think about teaching. You could do law school, it'd be great, but uh, I think I would encourage you to get a PhD and teach at the college level. He said, I think that'd be good use for your gifts. And that was the first time I'd ever really seriously thought about teaching at the college level. And that that conversation changed my life. It sure did. Yeah. How did uh, your family respond to that? Generally, very well. Um, you know, I come from a, a background, a blue-collar background. I'm a first-generation college student. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't really understand graduate school. That was a new concept for them. Uh, they would have understood law school or medical school, but graduate school was a different set of ideas. And the thought of me becoming a college professor to them was a little bit exotic. You know, they they supported me completely, um, but it was always a little bit of a mystery to them what I was doing. And I remember once I got my PhD and started teaching, uh, you know, my father, very hard worker, uh, I was talking to him about how much I was teaching. And he's he would say, so how many hours a week are you in the classroom? Like, well, you know, 12 or, you know, depending, nine or 12. And he'd say, that's a full-time job. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a full-time job. There's really a lot of work that goes into it. He said, it doesn't sound like all that much work. Um, so he was extremely supportive, but there was always this sort of mysterious thing about me teaching, but uh, they reacted very well. And my wife, you know, I got married shortly after college and uh, she was always extremely supportive as well as she would have to be getting a PhD, going to seminary, getting a PhD. 
Uh, that's a decade of commitment that we both made together. And uh, without her support, I could have never done it. Yeah. Now, you've been teaching, I don't know how long, 20 plus years, right? Yeah. So you, you taught at Tulane University, you taught at Calvin College in Michigan. Right. What are some of the challenges of teaching college-age students that you first experienced back at Tulane and Calvin that may be different today or even more difficult? You know, I, I'm not sure it's dramatically different, honestly. Really? I'm not sure it's dramatically different. Um, I approach teaching basically the same way that I did then. Uh, I guess you'd have to ask my students whether that's effective. I think it's effective on the whole. So I've always been more of a discussion-based professor. Uh, I don't do a lot of lecturing. And so uh, that hasn't really changed. I think it's a good way to keep the students engaged with what's happening. I will say probably one difference that I've noticed, um, again, I wouldn't call it dramatic. I think students are struggling a bit more with attention span now than they yeah. were 20 years ago. Uh, I think you have to be a little bit more proactive about keeping them involved in a conversation. I think you have to be careful about how much reading you're going to assign sometimes because students sometimes struggle completing long reading assignments in a way that they did not 20 years ago, I would say. Um, we have to be honest about it, right? This is the TikTok generation. Yeah. And a professor standing in front of a class for 50 minutes or 75 minutes is really different than scrolling through a 30-second video. Right. And we have to be aware of that. So I don't think we should change dramatically what we do. Uh, I don't think teaching should lapse into entertainment or that we should uh, you know, turn ourselves into comedians in front of a classroom. But I think you have to be aware that these students are just seeing the reality differently than we did for sure, and even different than the students I started teaching. So is it possible, like like being a parent, uh, if you have multiple kids, right. you really have to parent each kid differently because they, they are different. Do you have to teach classes differently because there's different students in each class or it's just really the same thing? Uh, I think you do have to be aware of what students you're teaching and what their backgrounds are. Uh, you know, I teach courses that are general education courses that are okay. 1000 level that you'd expect a freshman with very little background to walk in and be able to do well. I also teach classes like constitutional law. It's a 4000 level class with a heavy reading load. And that is a different set of expectations. And so I have to be aware of, of those kinds of differences. But honestly, uh, I try to teach in a way that's engaging and in a way that students will want to learn more. And if I can do that, then I think it's a uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. So let's, let's dive down. You, you led me perfectly into some of your classes that you do teach. One class in particular is film in politics. And this past semester that generated a lot of national media attention because Batman attended your class. Why? And I'm interested in knowing why did Batman come to the classes and how did it fit into your class lecture? Yeah. I mean, you know, Batman and I are close personal friends. We go way back. Um, and so we had a conversation a long time ago about him making an appearance in my class. Uh, he made sure that his uh, criminal schedule in Gotham wasn't overwhelming <laughs> on that evening. And, you know, our schedules meshed in such a way that uh, he was able to make an appearance. So, you know, I, I don't want to trade on that relationship all that much, but uh, I was I was gratified that he decided to show up. So why did he come to the particular classes in film and politics? What were you studying? So we were, this is the, this was the first day of class for that course. Um, it's an evening course. It's two-hour class, and uh, we watch films and we talk about them. Students watch them ahead of time, and then we discuss them. We may watch a few clips, you know, of the thing during uh, during class time. 
that week we were discussing the dark Knight. Okay. So this is Christopher Nolan, Batman film, mm-hmm. uh, the second in the Nolan trilogy of Batman films. And I think probably the best, uh, sort of superhero kind of film that's probably ever been made. And it also has a lot of deep political themes that are sort of working through it, even though a lot of people may not see that the first time you, you watch it. And so it was appropriate that Batman came uh, because of our viewing for that evening. And thankfully, he contributed to the discussion in a positive way. Yeah, and I, I'll tell our listeners, so if you want to see part of that class, uh, it was um, recorded, uh, video recorded, and it's gone viral on social media. You can see it on YouTube if you search Cedarville University Film and Politics, or you go to TikTok. Uh, there have been 23 million viewers of this video on TikTok. So if you're interested in seeing what we're talking about on video, check it out. I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, it was a uh, quite a unique class because just in general, the film and politics has deep political implica- implications. Is politics and film maybe your favorite class to teach, or are you more of a constitutional law guy? I really, I really enjoy teaching. Doesn't matter. Yeah, in that sense, it doesn't matter what I'm teaching. I generally enjoy it. Um, politics and film, I, I enjoy. I've enjoyed film most of my life, and uh, started looking at it from a different perspective. The more education that I got, started to be a little bit more critical of watching films and more, hopefully, more thoughtful in watching them. And honestly, uh, the course is a lot of fun to teach. But the goal is to get students to not simply just absorb a movie but to think as they're watching it and to consider what's being communicated to them. Uh, you know, film, just like television or watching YouTube or whatever, is a passive experience for it most is. people. You just right. sort of let it wash over you and you don't think much about it and you just sort of move on to the next thing. I think you should be actively engaged in watching a film. You should ask questions while you're watching it. You should try to make notes of relationships that you're seeing. You should think through what kind of themes are being um, put on display by the director and the screenwriter. And to me, that's a much more enjoyable experience. Now, some yeah. doesn't make it passive entertainment's bad. It's just if I can engage my mind as I watch it, it's just better for me. I also think it's better for students to be a little bit more critical about the things that they watch. How do your students respond to that um, mindset of looking at a, a film and thinking critically about it and its messages? It has to be something you have to train yourself. Yeah, I think it certainly there's some training that goes into it. Uh, So what I try to do is give them some leading questions as they watch a film. So here's a set of four or five things you should think about before you start watching this movie. And then once it starts to unfold, if I've hopefully engaged them enough with the questions, they should start to pick up things as they watch it. And so it's a process for them. But I also have to be really careful with what kind of films I pick. You know, you can't just start out with a super heavy movie that's three hours long that not much takes place and expect students to just naturally engage that intellectually. It's going to be right. really hard for them. So yeah. we start with the dark Knight instead. And so uh, I think you'd be careful with m- which movies you select, what kinds of movies you're dealing with. And uh, I think most students seem to respond really, really well to it. It's a popular class and I almost always have uh, more interest than I have seats. Yeah. So I, I have to ask, how did the students respond when Batman walked in the class? Uh, and, and how did you respond? <laughs> so I I was aware, again, given my deep, close, personal friendship with Batman, that he was coming. Um, uh, I was not fully aware of what was going to take place when he decided to make his entrance. Uh, the students had no concept that he was coming into the classroom. And I think if you watch the video, that's pretty obvious that they had no concept. And it's also pretty obvious when you watch it that I had no idea what was going to happen because it was just so funny. Um, and I was, it was really taken aback by how comical – 
in a good way, given that, you know, my reaction probably shows that I thought, I thought it was hysterical. So, uh, in the final few minutes of the podcast, podcast, let's transition to faith and politics. Uh, politics, as we know, is messy. And in today's culture, it seems as though both sides can't get along and it's not good. So how, how does your faith, Mark, influence your view of politics so that there can be peaceful dialogue? Uh, I think two things are probably the most important, at least for me, when I, when I think of politics from my faith. One is uh, I believe God's sovereign. And I think that God raises and lowers governments for his purposes and for his agenda, not for mine. And so to me, government is part of God's unfolding plan of history, and it will ultimately end in his glorification. And so I can take comfort in that, and I can be aware that no matter what happens in the midterm elections coming up or the presidential election in two years, whatever happens, I can be comforted by the fact that God is in control of this and it's not my responsibility. So I don't walk around with the weight of the political world on my shoulders. I try to see it from his perspective and just sort of uh, be humble about it and think, okay, God's doing his work. And when I don't like his work or don't appreciate it, I still have to be aware of who he is and what he's trying to accomplish. Uh, and But I also know when it goes the way that I'd prefer, that often his work will take turns and veer into different directions that I could ever expect. So I think the pressure has to come off from that perspective. So to, so many people, when they approach voting or anything else, you can just tell they're burdened by it in a way that suggests that they don't quite grasp that ultimately this is God's responsibility, not theirs. You know, in a way it does, but every vote matters or our vote is critical. It, of course it matters. Every vote matters. Um, but the outcome of the election doesn't rest on what I do. Uh, you know, I think of it almost like if I'm discussing my faith with someone who's not a believer uh, and I put pressure on every word that I use thinking, oh boy, if I don't phrase this just the right way, then this right. isn't going to work out. That's not a good way to go about making no. relationships with no. people or, or sharing the gospel with people. Just like voting, if you think of it in those kind of tense terms, I think it's it's probably the wrong approach to voting. Uh, the other thing I would say that really affects the way that I view the political process you know, we, as you said, we live in a very messy political world. It's extremely divided. Polarized is the word that we always use to right, describe it. Right. Even if I think that we're in a serious conflict, and I think we probably are as a country, Yes. Uh, I have to see those people on the other side of that conflict as, as fellow children of God um, who are created in his image and who I'm supposed to love. And so uh, even if we have sharp disagreements, even if I think of them as enemies, which I don't think is a healthy attitude, always, but even if I think of him in those terms, uh, Christ is pretty clear about what our obligations are in relation to enemies. Yeah. And so yeah. we're supposed to love them. We're supposed to model Christian love to them to the extent that we can. And in the process, hopefully witness to them, uh, even in a political realm, yeah. and show them the love of Christ with the hope that if they're not, that they'll be redeemed in the process. And so I think if you have that as sort of a motivation, it changes your attitude toward people on the other side of the aisle and it should change your interaction with them when yeah. you encounter them in real life or when you encounter them online yeah. uh, or in other places. Good. That's a great perspective because it's the biblical perspective. Thanks for sharing that. When did you get an interest in politics? So I remember uh, politics is a pretty important part of my life from very early on, uh, mostly because my family was interested in politics. And so uh, we watched the news regularly. We talked about the news regularly. Uh, my father in particular was engaged politically and so we discussed things, and uh, and that was really where it started. So 
One of my first memories is of watching my father watch the election returns, the 1976 presidential election, and seeing his response to it. And he wasn't real thrilled about the about the outcome, um, but it showed me uh, his interest in it and his passion for it, uh, which I think definitely affected me. And so it was pretty early on that I was intrigued with politics. I grew up in the 80s, and so I grew up in the Reagan era and I think Reagan was a particularly good role model as a president. And so I had a very positive understanding of, of national politics as I was growing up. And I think that fueled my interest as well. Yeah. Do you see a day when the country returns to a more civil uh, environment in the political world? Because uh, I remember a day when I could disagree with someone from a different political viewpoint. In fact, my friend Dan Rosen from St. Louis and I would have conversations all the time on political topics. We are vastly different in our ideology, but we could always discuss things. And at the end, we would disagree, but we'd still be friends. Do you see us ever getting back to something like that? So I have a question for you. You said his name was Dan. Dan. So where did you know Dan from? How did you get to know Dan initially? Uh, I, I met Dan through business relationship. Okay. Through business relationship. Yeah. So I think what we've seen in the last several decades is, um, a decline in the places where we would meet people who we disagree with politically. Okay. And so overwhelmingly now we tend to work in and worship in and live in communities that, that hold the same political values that we do. We do. And so because of that, you're less likely to encounter people unless you're very deliberate about it yeah. who have very different political opinions from you. And so a business relationship would be one of the ways you'd still expect people to have those connections. Right. But you think now people are working from home. A lot of work takes place digitally, even through Zoom and other things. It's going to be hard to build those kind of relationship True. and have those hard conversations with people yeah. uh, if you don't know them very well. Uh, we've seen a decline in things like um, membership to the YMCA, membership to bowling leagues, uh, membership in parent-teacher associations. I mean, think of all these places where you used to have to interact with people that would have starkly different views of you right. than you, that those are just going away. Yeah. And so because of that, there is less and less interaction with people, uh, which I think makes it harder to sort of bridge that gap with them. So in that sense, I don't, I don't know if I see an obvious way that that gap gets, um, gets bridged. Now I do think though, sometimes we make a little bit too much of the polarization. Uh, I heard one person, I think, persuasively discussing this recently. And uh, she argued that a lot of the polarization we see is really around people more than it's around issues, which I think is a very perceptive comment. True. That's right. So she said, we have very strong opinions about politicians, but you see a lot of agreement when you talk about specific issues with people. And so uh, we may disagree over whether we vote for Joe Biden or whether we vote for Donald Trump or whoever, but then you talk about a core issue and you can often find some middle ground where at least there's enough agreement to think about moving forward in a way. Yeah. So I think in that sense, I do have some hope that maybe we can choose a little better leaders. Uh, and that that's at all levels of government, I think. People who are committed to solving problems, who are committed to working to get things done, as opposed to people now, I think we see a lot of performance in politics. Uh, a lot of people who are really just doing it to get attention more than they're doing it to really solve issues. And so if we as voters are a little bit more deliberate in choosing the right kinds of people, then I think you could get people working together a little bit better. Yeah. Mark, our time is up, but I, I do have one final question as we do approach the midterm elections. Uh, several months ago, political pundits were saying that uh, they were predicting a red wave where Republicans would gain control of the House and possibly the Senate. 
from my perspective today, the red wave doesn't seem um, all that possible. Maybe it's going to happen. I don't know. I'm not an expert like you, but where do you fall on the matter? I think that uh, the red wave has gotten blunted quite a bit. Uh, it doesn't mean that w the Republicans are going to, you know, strike out in the midterms. I think they'll probably recapture the House of Representatives. They have a reasonable chance to win the United States Senate, but we're not looking at these massive gains no. that people were predicting a year ago. Uh, I think the biggest reason for it, honestly, um, President Trump, the Democrats want to make the midterms about Trump. Correct. And the Republicans want to make it about the economy. And so both are right. Both are correct in that sense. And to the extent that the Democrats are able to make it about Trump, it's going to be a much better year for the Democrats. The extent that the Republicans are able to make it about the economy, good for the Republicans. And so that's those are the dueling narratives that you're looking at. Uh, you know, President Trump is an unusual political figure. A lot of former presidents would have sort of be in the shadows right now and right. just let things happen. Right. That's not him. And so because he's in the news so much, uh, he provides that target for Democrats, which I think complicates the midterm elections quite a bit. So I think that's part of what's going on. I think also the polarization is affecting uh, the midterms quite a bit because people are viewing each party as extreme uh, as opposed to more moderate options. But I think we also have to wrestle with the possibility that the court's decision to overturn Roe with the Dobbs case is affecting the midterms in a way that maybe we wouldn't have anticipated. Yeah. So we won't know for sure, and maybe we'll never fully understand exactly how the decision affected the midterms. But I think it maybe will have energized some Democratic voters uh, in a way that maybe have, will have blunted this Republican wave. Yeah. Uh, good observation, good perspective. And I wish I had more time to talk about it with you, but uh, for the time you've given to the podcast, I'm appreciative. And uh, for all you work, all the work you do at the university, teaching students, working with me with the media, uh, thank you for all that too. And again, obviously, thanks for joining me this week on the Cedarville Stories podcast. It's always a lot of fun. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, hopefully at some point you can do it again. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory.